You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. What you're going to hear next is a supernatural utterance, God speaking through the gift of prophecy. Another, another gift. To one, the gift of miracles. To another, the gift of healing. To another, the gift of tongues. To another, the gift of prophecy. This is Heaven Bent, Episode 2 The Gifts of the Spirit. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. And prophecy is just one of the three gifts of the Holy Spirit that we'll be exploring this episode the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in tongues, and the gift of healing. These curious spiritual practices and supernatural beliefs are an integral part of the Toronto Blessing, the spiritual movement that we are exploring during this first season of Heaven Bent. I'm back at the Atwell Centre for another Revival 25 conference session. They're playing footage of an iconic moment from one of the original Toronto Blessing Revival services. And here in the overflow section, we're watching it on tiny television sets hanging from the low ceiling. I'm here. That's the keyboard player from back in the day. I'm here. He's standing in front of his keyboard with his eyes closed and his arms are flapping and waving and shaking. Am I not he? sits in the heavens and laughs at the plans of men? Has it not already been established from time of old that my king would be established on his holy mountain? When I was growing up, prophecy was a normal part of a regular Sunday service. So this kind of prophetic language is very familiar to me. Except today, it's been a while since I've been to church like this. And sitting here in Toronto hearing people talk as if they're God in a seemingly ancient or I don't even know what it is, a a biblical way of speaking. It's weird. It's weird to me now. In this day and hour, if those should only believe. But I can also see how the prophets influenced me. My style of writing, my stage presence, even the way I talk to my children when I'm trying to get a very great and serious point across. I'm going to give you the the long story as short as I can. That's Heidi Baker, a wildly successful faith healer, missionary, and dogged humanitarian. And one of the more high-profile session speakers at this entire Revival 25 conference. She's pert, blonde, and the kind of woman that looks like she's wearing a power suit even when she's not. That's awesome. (laughs) Heidi is what some might call a product of the Toronto Blessing. That's because of the profound way her life and ministry were impacted 
after a visit here in 1997. That would have been around three years since the revival started. So I got up out of my seat. I, I did something that wouldn't be like me at all. I pushed through, through the people in the back and I ran and I knelt right down here. Oh, I just knelt down and I just lifted my hands up. I just cried out and it was, it was in the middle of his message. He just put his hand on my head and he said, God wants to know, do you want the nation of Mozambique? And the poor will hear the good news and the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised. I just, I didn't think. I didn't think. I didn't think at all. It somehow bypassed my brain. And, and God just went straight to my heart. And I just cried out, yes, yes. And, and God knocked me out. And I got electrocuted. I, I thought, what are these people, do? what do they have? Heat lights. I thought I was going to die literally. I said, this is it. I'm, I'm going to die right here in, in Toronto. Gonna... Heidi did not die in Toronto, obviously. Quite the opposite. Today, according to a bunch of completely uncredible websites, she has an estimated net worth of $100 million. But if that's anywhere even near true, that mad cash would have been earned through her work as a best-selling Christian author. Books aside, most notably, Heidi Baker is the CEO and co-founder of IRIS, a not-for-profit Christian humanitarian organization and Iris, amongst many other international accomplishments, has founded over 5,000 churches in Mozambique. There is something about this white woman claiming an African nation for God that rubs me the wrong way. But in Mozambique, villagers all over the country lovingly call her Mama Heidi, and she has a reputation there for caring for orphans, healing the deaf and blind, and even raising the dead. And my next guest was so intrigued by the claims of supernatural healing that she set out to verify them scientifically. Well, my name is Candy Gunther-Brown, and I'm a professor of religious studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. In 2010, Candy Gunther-Brown led a research team to Mozambique and later published her study in the peer-reviewed Southern Medical Journal, She's here to tell us how they conducted this study and the results. She also shared what she knows about the traditional evangelical spiritual practice that Heidi uses in her meetings. It's called prayer for healing. Often this kind of community of Pentecostals connected with Toronto will, will emphasize that Jesus gave his followers authority to heal in the name of Jesus. And so they'll pray with prayers of command. Lord, I take authority over stomach problems, I take authority over gastritis. Uh, commanding whatever the condition is to be healed. Uh, commanding bones and ligaments to come back into proper function and alignment. Commanding metal to disappear if it's blocking movement. Deafness be healed. Uh, commanding an organ to regenerate uh, if it's missing. Weakness and vision be healed. Problems in the neck be healed, in the spine, in the hips, in the kidneys. 
Candy Gunther Brown and her research team followed Heidi as she traveled through these rural areas. Think mud hut villages, no technology, no hospitals. And they brought along portable equipment to evaluate people's vision and hearing. And the way this generally works is uh, Baker's team will set up uh, a movie projector, sound machine, keyboard. They'll play some music. They'll show the Jesus film. And then in Portuguese or the local language, and she knows several, uh, she'll make uh, what is in Portuguese called a promessa or a promise, saying that God will heal the sick in answer to prayer as proof that Jesus is the most powerful healer. The communities in Mozambique then identify who amongst them is blind and who is deaf, and those people go to the front. And so my team tested every single person who was brought up before they received prayer and after they received prayer, whether or not they reported healing uh, and whether or not any change kind of um, seemed to occur. So we tested everyone. The, the basic summary of this is that we found statistically significant improvements in uh, both uh, hearing and vision. Statistically significant improvements in both hearing and vision. Wow. If you're a Christian and believe in the healing power of prayer, it's easy at this point to jump to the conclusion that this was simply God's work. But there are other possible explanations, if you're willing to consider them like the power of suggestion and the power of positive thinking. Unfortunately, science hasn't proven whether or not there's a God who is responsible for healing as a result of prayer. That's more of a theological dilemma. But regardless of what I or you believe is going on here, Candy Gunther Brown's research does raise an interesting question. Uh, policymakers, doctors, patients should want to know the answer to the question, does prayer for healing improve health outcomes? Does it worsen health outcomes? Is it a distraction uh, from medical treatment? Is it discouraging people from getting medical treatment? Uh, so, I mean, there really are important kind of real-life consequences. But what are these consequences, really? If people suffer less, whether God is responsible for these verified health improvements or not, how is that harmful? Well, right now, as I produce this podcast during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there are these very real-life consequences playing out in many religious communities. For example, Solid Rock Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where in-house services are still being held despite stay-at-home orders. Can I ask you about your decision to go to church to be inside that building? I wouldn't be anywhere else. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. People who don't go to this no. church. No, I'm covered in Jesus' blood. I'm covered in Jesus' well, blood. Are other people who don't go to this church who you might encounter? All of these people go to this church. No, but you're going to be in places where other people I go are. to the grocery store every day. I'm in Walmart, what? Home Depot, all of those people. But you people. could get them sick from what happens They the could church. get me sick, but they're not because I'm covered in his blood. Thank you very much. A lot of this confidence that God will either protect you or heal you from the virus comes from the authority that many evangelicals believe is given to them by God to cast out sickness and disease in the name of Jesus. 
I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. That's Kenneth Copeland, a popular charismatic televangelist based in Texas. You killer, you get off this nation. I demand judgment on you. I demand a vaccination to come immediately. Yes. You will destroy through COVID-19. No more. No more. It is over. When I was growing up, we were tuned into American faith healers like Kenneth Copeland all the time. And the United States of America is healed. We watched all these guys on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the world's largest religious television network. And it was beamed into our living room by this ancient, gigantic satellite dish that sat in our deck in Prince Rupert. My favorite faith healer was Benny Hinn. He's a majestic Israeli man with impeccably coiffed salt and pepper hair and a signature bright white suit. Every episode, he'd broadcast another of his miracle crusades from some gigantic arena in places like Florida, Kentucky, Toronto. And it was a great show. Super dramatic, so much emotion. And sometimes, well, pretty much every time, he would wave his hand towards the crowd and he'd say, Take the anointing! And hundreds, maybe thousands of people would crumble to the ground in unison. Fire on ya! The guy was was so incredible on the stage. And at the end of every episode, this was actually probably my favorite part. He would sit quietly in a gigantic, oversized, ornate chair, and he'd look right into the camera. Thank you, Jesus, he'd say. I see a a woman in her 60s. The Holy Spirit is coming down on you. Arthritis being healed. Or he'd say something like, I see a man in his bedroom. He's German. God's telling me you speak German and God is healing you of your heart issue right now. But I remember this one time, Benny Hinn talked to me personally, or at least I thought he did. I was homesick that day with the flu or something, but I'd also been having some problems with a sore back around that time. Benny Hinn, he looked right into the camera like he does, right into my living room. And he said something about seeing a 13-year-old girl sitting on a couch with a bad back. And I just knew, I knew he was talking to me. Benny Hinn told me that God was healing me And at that exact moment, I felt a heat go up my back, just like he said it would. But I've since come to realize that a tingly rush of heat could have been felt up the back of anyone watching any TV show where they honestly thought that the host was suddenly talking directly to them. And it wasn't like I was suffering from some sort of chronic back pain issue either. I think that I'd watched this show enough that One time, something he said finally applied to me. A 13-year-old girl sitting on a couch with back problems. Benny Hinn's ministry has been investigated numerous times by many different independent non-Christian news agencies. Respectable journalists who followed his traveling miracle crusades for a whole year and not a single claim of healing was able to be verified. If real physical healing was happening in Benny Hinn's meetings, like he said it was, I trust that these investigations would have revealed some proof, anything, but they found nothing. Makes me feel like a fool. 
But at the same time, I haven't let a scoundrel like Benny Hinn take away a deep-seated belief in me that prayer for healing is powerful. Prayer connects people in a very special way. And yes, it can lead to, at the very least, some kind of true emotional, mental, and spiritual healing. Okay, let's move on now. We're going to dig into another of the gifts of the Spirit, this time speaking in tongues. When I was 14 years old, I spoke in tongues. I believed it was a unique language given to me by God so that I could spiritually communicate with Him and that through me, He could communicate His messages to the people in my church. I was kneeling at the church altar in Prince Rupert the first time I spoke in tongues. It was during a service that had been specifically focused on how to receive various gifts, like how to use your hands to invoke the Holy Spirit's healing power, how to trust your God-given instincts to prophesy and share messages from God to your friends and family and strangers, and yes, how to speak in tongues. On that night, Whoever the speaker was, she told us that it was totally okay to just pretend at first, and then the Holy Spirit would take over. So, that's what I did. But what was I doing? What was I actually doing? Was that really some kind of divine language? Or was it just gibberish? And no matter what it was, whatever it is, does it have any measurable impacts in the lives of the estimated 500 million people on earth who do it? as part of their spiritual practices. My name is uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg. I am the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. In 2006, Dr. Newberg released a highly publicized neurological study on glossolalia. So glossolalia, or also referred to as speaking in tongues, is a practice that primarily has grown out of the Pentecostal Christian tradition. And basically what it looks like is that uh, it looks like the person is, or sounds like, that the person is making a variety of vocalizations that sound like a language, but really have no true linguistic structure to them. In fact, uh, research studies have looked at the, the, the audio files of the people who are speaking in tongues, and, um, and, and basically you know, it doesn't have any syntax or grammar like anything that we know of in terms of traditional uh, languages. Another term that might be used is an altered state of consciousness. It really takes them to kind of a different place while they are engaged in this practice. And they may do it for five or ten minutes. They may do it for a half hour, an hour. Uh, and even though it doesn't have any true linguistic structure, People do describe ways of trying to interpret what is being said. In fact, there are some individuals who consider themselves to be interpreters of the glossolalia and help the individuals try to understand something about them. And in this case, it can be something about their lives, meaning and purpose in life, about their sense of spirituality. It could be something more, more mundane or practical about their, their relationships or their job or something like that. I have this one memory of a moment of glossolalia interpretation that goes in that category of things that I think I remember happening, but it's such a weird memory that there's part of me thinking I must have made it up. Pretty sure it was a Sunday evening service and there was this missionary visiting our church in Prince Rupert. It was a lady. I feel like she was on some kind of Canadian church speaking tour thing. 
I do remember clearly, though, that she was a missionary based somewhere in Africa. And I remember that because whoever she was, she painted such a vivid picture for us about what it was like for her to spread the word of God through the Congo rainforest. Like she was some sort of, I don't know, like Jesus, sword, Bible, wielding Wonder Woman, making her way through the jungle. And during that service, right after the standard good hour of singing and just before the sermon, right there on the sweet spot of so many traditional Pentecostal and charismatic church services, there was a quiet moment of prophecy as the music lulled and a man at the back of the church started speaking loudly in tongues. The missionary from Africa said that she was confident she was the one to translate. She was the one that had received the anointing because this man from our church in Prince Rupert, he had not been speaking in some language not of this earth. He had been speaking unwittingly in Swahili. All these years later, as I re-examine this memory as part of this podcast, it's feeling really, um, I don't know, icky to me, I guess, at this point, that no one, none of the people that I've asked about it, people that were very likely there that night, none of them remember anything about a guy in our church suddenly speaking Swahili. But they don't doubt it. They just generally agree that so many miracles like this were happening back then and still do happen that it's hard to keep track of them all. And for whatever it's worth, to you, to me, there is evidence of this kind of thing happening in the Bible to Jesus' disciples, which actually makes me think, since nobody else seems to remember this wild thing happening in our church, that maybe I turned a vivid Bible story into a childhood memory? Maybe? From Acts, chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be the tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. This is part of the backstory for the Day of Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, and the namesake for the future Pentecostal movement. On that, once again, Professor Candy Gunther-Brown. The first Pentecost after Jesus's crucifixion and reputed resurrection, his followers were waiting for him because he had told them, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So a group of them were waiting. And then on that Pentecost, uh, the report in Acts is that the Holy Spirit fell. Uh, People started speaking in other languages that other people could understand if it it was was their own language. Uh, Their behavior was so odd that other onlookers thought that it was even drunken kinds of behavior because uh, they just were so overpowered by whatever was taking place. Uh, So that's, that's the kind of origin story and why the name Pentecostal. Okay, 
let's get back now to the guts of Dr. Newberg's neurological study on glossolalia. It involved taking brain images of five Pentecostal women while they were speaking in tongues. The study that we did with glossolalia actually involved a kind of brain imaging technique called um, SPECT scanning. And SPECT is an acronym that stands for Single Photon Emission Computed Tomography. So here's how this worked. Before the test subject is doing anything, they put a small intravenous catheter in their arm, giving them access to the bloodstream. Now she injects her while she's singing. And then... I'm going to die. In this instance, the catheter is in, and the woman is listening to her favorite worship song through a pair of headphones, really loud. Then, as the tracer gets into her blood, it heads up into her brain, and before long, it's kind of moving its way around up there. And it essentially gives us a snapshot of what's happening in the brain at any given moment in time. So it will help us to capture a picture of what their brain is doing while they are doing the glossolalia. The individuals who were part of this were of the Pentecostal Christian tradition. They were people who have done speaking in tongues for a long time, uh, something that was a very fundamental part of who they were. It was something that they did on a routine basis uh, because we wanted people to feel comfortable being able to do this in a kind of uncomfortable setting, being in a, in a laboratory type of setting in a hospital. Even though the catheter doesn't bother the person, you know, it's still something that a person could be aware of. And I was very impressed as someone who had never really seen speaking in tongues before at how easy they were able to do this very, very intense kind of experience for them. And then at that point, we would inject them so that we could see what was going on in their brain. When they started the study, Dr. Newberg and his team had some ideas about what they might find. They'd done this kind of study before on people in other similar spiritual practices, like meditation and prayer, and not just Christianity, other religions too. And in those studies, they found an increase of activity in the frontal lobes, which makes sense. The frontal lobe is the area of the brain that helps us concentrate and focus our attention. But when people were speaking in tongues, what we found was just the opposite. So when they started to speak in tongues, we actually see a decrease of activity in the frontal lobes. And I think that's a very fundamentally important finding with regard to this practice, because if increased frontal lobe activity makes you feel like you are purposely doing something and are concentrating, then decreased frontal lobe activity would make it feel like you aren't the one in charge, that something is doing this for you. In fact, the the frontal lobe is also the area that specifically helps us to produce speech. When Dr. Newberg released his study, so this was back in 2006, even some mainstream media interpreted the final results as proof that some sort of supernatural mental possession was taking place when people spoke in tongues. 
for the individuals who are doing the practice, they really say, well, you know, of course my brain is kind of shut down because God's taking over me. The brain scan findings don't tell you what the true answer is. It doesn't tell you whether or not God is truly moving through them or not. We don't have any way of specifically looking at, at, at that particular, you know, whether God is there or not. Uh, but it does tell us a lot about what's going on in the brain. And the findings are certainly consistent with the feelings that people talk about, that sense of surrender, that sense, uh, that powerful sense of emotions that are part of that experience of glossolalia. After learning about the results of Dr. Newberg's neurological study, I am more curious about glossolalia than ever. What's the history of it? When did it start? Where did it start? Who was the first person to do it? The answer takes us back to Topeka, Kansas, New Year's Day, 1901. The first person believed to have done it in modern times was a woman named Agnes Osmond. Agnes was a student at Bethel Bible School. It was common for me to pray the verses while I was praying. And it was as if hands were laid upon my head that the Holy Spirit fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues, glorifying God. I talked in several languages and it was clearly manifest when a new dialect was spoken. I had the added joy and glory my heart longed for and a depth of the presence of the Lord within that I had never known before. It was as if rivers of living water were proceeding from my innermost being. So I don't imagine myself ever speaking in tongues again personally. And I'm not convinced that anything supernatural is causing this utterance. I think there's still a strong likelihood that there are a swath of people who you might see speaking in tongues that are consciously doing it for show, to fit in, to be amongst the chosen people. But after learning more about Dr. Newberg's study, I do feel more sort of illuminated with the idea that there are, for some people, potential and very real emotional and spiritual benefits to be gained from this practice. More Heaven Bent after this quick message. Okay, we've explored the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of healing, and now the gift of prophecy. An incredible friend of our ministry, Sean Ball. What well, come on up, Sean. We just want to welcome him to the platform. Why don't you stand and uh, honor him as he comes up? Another day, another Revival 25 conference session here in Toronto. And this next session speaker is arguably the most buzzed about speaker during the entire four days. Sean just carries this incredible heart of God. Um, I love hearing the prophetic word released. I love it when I'm, it's saturated and kind of stuffed full of God's heart. And so we just invite you to have at these people. Yeah. We want to like draw and suck the prophetic anointing and gift out of you. So be welcome on Thank this stage. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Hi, everybody. Hello, hello. Sean Bowles is a pastor, TV host, coach, author, international speaker, husband, father. Uh, I bring you greetings from California, Southern California, Los Angeles. It's Most notably, cool. though, Sean Bowles is considered a prophet. That's someone in the church who's believed to be a chosen vessel for God's divine messages. And here's what my research is telling me. 
pretty much every known ancient society has had prophets who deliver messages to the people from an agreed-upon higher power. But in the 1980s, 1990s, in Pentecostal and especially charismatic tradition, it took form in something called the Apostolic Prophetic Movement. It's a movement that supports this idea of modern-day prophets, chosen, but seemingly everyday people who have the ability to speak on behalf of God. But Sean Bowles is a prophet with a twist. For one, he uses personal information to supposedly verify his supernatural abilities. So, for example, he calls out two seemingly random names from the stage. Is there a, a Jeff and a Susan here? A Jeff and a Susan together? Can we get a microphone? I want to ask him a few questions. will help me prophesy. Suddenly, a Jeff and a Susan are standing up in the sanctuary, and a stagehand comes from out of nowhere and gives them a mic. Is there, is there a, a, a Katie in your life? Yes, sir, eldest daughter. Sean says that he receives these messages and bits of, you know, personal information about the lives of strangers through the Holy Spirit prior to going out on stage. But because he says he has a bad memory, he records all the details on his phone, which he refers to pretty frequently during his session. For that reason, some people call him the smartphone prophet. Is there people from Brazil here? We got a Brazilian crowd. Is there a Gustavo from Brazil? I heard Gustavo from Brazil. Right here. Right here, me. Gustavo. He's coming all the way up. He's like, I'm going to get it, whatever this is. I love it. Hey. I like your hunger. I was, I was like getting coffee, and I was like, Gustavo, who's that? It's, it's you, it's yeah. you. Right now in college, are you studying something medical? I go to dental school. Dental school, yes. Wow, well, Jesus, I pray for Gustavo. He showed me you're a prophetic young man, <laughs> that you're going to bring prophetic fire, that what I'm doing here with words of knowledge, you're going to bring a spirit of evangelism through what you do. I pray over you that this prophetic fire would hit you, that God is calling you out by name. You'll call many people out by name. You, even patience, you're going to call many people out by name. You're going to know who they are. You're going to know who they are to God, their value, their loved. And just like you have been loved well, you're going to love well. So I bless you in Jesus' name. Fire of God. Sean Bowles brings Gustavo to his knees with the personal stuff he knew about his life. That he's a dental student, and just the fact that he even knew he was there in the first place, in Toronto. Gustavo from Brazil. But while it feels like everyone around me is in shock and awe or pure delight at Sean Bowles' high degree of consistency throughout his session, I've got alarm bells going off like crazy. And later that night, back at my airport hotel, a quick Google search and I find out that I'm not the only one who's suspicious about Sean Bowles. My Google search, Sean Bowles' false prophet, turns up a popular blog post by this guy. Hi, I am Johnny, and I live in Los Angeles. Johnny Leaders, very much like me, likes to do research and conduct investigations. And prior to his investigation into the ministry of Sean Bowles, which we'll hear more about in a moment, Johnny Leaders investigated claims of jewels falling from heaven at a California church. There was someone who said, God is sending jewels down that are falling in this church. Well, I got in my car. I drove straight to the church. I picked up some of the jewels. And they said, these are real. These are jewels. I said, well, how do you know? 
And I said, well, they are, can't you see? And I said, well, let me go take it to my microscope. And I did. I zoomed in on it and I looked very carefully and I noticed there were a bunch of tiny little straight lines along the surface that looked very similar to machining. And I said, why are jewels from heaven machined? And so I started looking on eBay for similar shaped jewels and there they were. And they were very cheap and they were made in Thailand and they were exact shape and color as the ones I found. Johnny started looking into Sean Bowles after seeing him at a Christian conference in Southern California. First of all, I don't really know Sean, so I don't know his character, but he did have a moment during the conference where he's like, hey, I have some words of knowledge for so-and-so people, and they mention names, and then he'd go about listing specific information about them, such as their children's names, their full name, their job, anniversary date, conditions or concerns, schools, a state or city they live in, something like this. Uh, is 1994 a significant time for you? Absolutely. Okay, so, so I felt like you guys made a huge transition from bringing new life into bringing the gold of the glory. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense because the church we were in was called New Life. Ooh. And, and now we're in Golden Valley. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I believe God can give words of knowledge because I've been in prayer just in like small communities and I believe God will tell me something or some someone and we will say it to someone and it'll be absolutely impactful. I mean, I've seen people brought to tears and things like that. And it's usually very personal and it has to do with something going on in their lives or some truth or some wisdom they needed to hear. But I've never seen it be like their birth date or their street address. It's always been something revelatory. So what Johnny did was he looked at all of these claims and all of these prophecies by Sean Bowles, and he asked himself, what is the correlation between them? And it looked to me that by a glance, it was public knowledge. Like none of it seemed private or difficult to find. Most people wouldn't know that though. I think most people would hear and say, oh, that's, that's private. And how, how could anyone know that? I'm like, no, you can, you can know that. And this, this is so much so that on Facebook afterwards, I actually made a comment on one of Sean's posts saying, oh, you know, this is all public knowledge. And he replied to me specifically saying it wasn't and that you can't find it online. I had replied back, well, you can. And then he deleted that comment thread. I don't know if he had, he had an ill intent, then maybe he just didn't want to get people all thinking the wrong thing or something. After that little online exchange, Johnny decided he wanted to dig deeper. He spent hours watching a video of a Sean Bowles prophecy session, pausing it after every claim, and then using Facebook and Twitter, Google, whatever, to see if he could find that same information online. And he could. And it wasn't just a specific claim. It was every single claim that he did, I was able to find online. It, it so happened that the people that he spoke about in the conference were also very vocal online. So it was easy to find their information. And this is all public stuff that they willingly post themselves. So this isn't equivalent to like doxing someone. I mean, this is like, hey, this is their public profile, you know. Obviously, tracing the personal information that Sean Bowles shares on stage back to a Facebook or a Twitter post or whatever is in no way proof that that's where he's getting his information from. 
And he has a lot of fans. Followers, friends, family, they all believe in and trust his ability to communicate meaningful messages to them from God. Sean Bowles declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but if I had spoken to him, I would have asked what it was like to have the shadow of false prophets hang over him like this. Because in my eyes, the reputation of modern-day prophets, especially prophets like Sean Bowles, who have traveling and televised ministries, their reputations have been irreparably damaged by the long line of scam artists that have come before them. During the Toronto Blessing, it looks like there was at least one documented case of purposeful fraud. It was 1999. John and Carol had invited a Brazilian evangelist for a four-day appearance. Her name was Silvania Machado. And at the time, she was believed to be so anointed by God that gold dust would fall from her hair and seep out her pores. At some point during that four-day appearance, John Arnott became suspicious and cut Sylvania Machado's visit short. John's quoted online about it saying, I didn't want to have her here because we have had far too much of the real thing to have something suspect. And later, a University of Toronto geochemist reportedly analyzed the material and determined that whatever was in her hair and on her skin all over her was actually a kind of plastic film or glitter. Unfortunately, it looks like an unwavering belief in the supernatural can make a church, can make a person incredibly vulnerable to people who know how and want to take advantage. Okay, my name is uh, Mark Edward, and uh, I'm a mentalist. Mark Edward knows all about the various tricks that con men use because he used to be one. But today... Uh, I do what's called psychic entertainment which means I use the five senses to create the illusion of a six. One of my favorite sentences that I hear all the time is there's no way in the world you could know that. I am here to say, yes, they can, because now we have social media where we gladly put up our most intimate images and everything about us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, four square we have here in, in uh, LA. Uh, it's very easy once you have somebody's name to Google them or go on Facebook and then scroll back, you know, a year or so and glean all these things that most people have completely forgotten about that they put on Facebook. And then the medium dredges them up and pretends to get it from the spirit world. They're not trained as entertainers, they're just charlatans. Mediums these days are lazy. Now they just have the internet, so they don't even have to get out of bed. They can do it with a cat on their lap or whatever they want. In the olden days, Mark says that scam artists used to do all sorts of pre-show. If they could get the address of one or two people that they knew were going to be in the audience, then they would drive to that person's house, check out what kind of car they drove, or that they have a dog and it's brown, or that there's a big tree in the front yard. And then during their, you know, they would say, I see a big tree in your front yard. And all it was was they just did pre-show. So that, it's just, it's been going on for, I don't know, hundreds of years. You know, it's nothing new. Beyond his work as a mentalist, Mark Edward is also a science activist. He works with skeptic groups all over the world to promote critical thinking. Uh, Randy, a good friend of mine, James, the amazing Randy, 
he kind of got a lot of us started because he exposed Peter Popoff. Here it comes, complete healing in Jesus. Ooh, mighty name right now, right now, right now. Amen. Peter Popoff. In the 1980s, he was a rich and famous televangelist who told people they could receive physical healing through their faith in God. And like many of his peers, he said God would bolster their faith and therefore their ability to be healed by faith by providing them with their personal information for verification purposes. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. It turns out Peter Popoff was wearing an earpiece so he could receive radio messages from his wife, who was backstage feeding him all this personal information about the people in his audience, information that people had willingly provided about themselves on prayer cards that were handed out as they arrived for that meeting. You want to get rid of this walker, sister? Oh, glory. How long have you been walking on that walk? About three years. Three years. She lives at 1627 10th Street. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. She has arthritis all over. Burning this arthritis right out of your body. You know, he would tell people their, ad- their address. He'd say, this is John Smith, 220 Elm Street. It was like, you know, it was so obvious that he knew beforehand, but people want to believe. Burning that arthritis out of her body. But religious fanatics have always used mentalist tricks. It's all, it's all a show. It's a performance art, you know. People always say, oh, no, not my psychic or not my not my uh, spiritual leader or my life coach or my, you know, it goes on and on and on. They have confirmation bias and they don't, they don't recognize it right in front of them. It's so easy to fake this shit. <laughs> it really is, you know. Next time on Heaven Bent. This is the most significant spiritual event in our generation. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Wow, fire on them, Lord. That was one of the biggest moments of my life that happened on the floor there in Toronto. When he touches you, the miracle is you live through that. There's this guy who's a modern-day John the Baptist, and he moves in signs and wonders and miracles follow him. It was like watching dominoes. They went down left and right and forward and backward. And I've never seen piles of people quite like that ever in my life. It sort of grew and grew and grew, like a trickle growing into a stream, into a tide, into an ocean, until it seemed to engulf the whole of the room. And everybody seemed to be engulfed in this outpouring of hilarity and peculiarity. And completely without any kind of volition of my own, I just I just fell on the floor and I started laughing. And I laughed and I laughed. It was very contagious. 